When you're the sixth richest man on the planet, there are some things you just have no need for. And one of those things is an in-house legal staff. Today on the podcast, we talk about Warren Buffett and the unusual way his company Berkshire Hathaway handles its legal matters. And we also hear about the unusual way a federal judge in California is expressing his unhappiness with his very large workload. Plus, we update you on the biggest legal stories of the week. Stay tuned. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the new legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. What we do here with On the Merits is feature the best reporting coming out of the Bloomberg Law newsroom and share with you some of the more notable or eye-catching legal documents that we come across. Today, we're going to be examining the lawyers who work for a company owned by, well, let's just say he lives in Omaha, he really likes ice cream, and his net worth stretches into the 12 figures. But first, let's take a look at the biggest legal news stories of the week. We got a look at the first slate of judicial nominees from the Biden administration today, and they include some very notable names. There's Tiffany Cunningham for the Federal Circuit, who would be the first black judge to serve on this court. There's Zahid Karashi for the District of New Jersey, who would be the first Muslim American to serve on any federal court. But the nominee people are perhaps watching most closely is Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who was nominated to take over Attorney General Merrick Garland's seat on the D.C. Circuit. Brown-Jackson could be in line for another promotion if and when Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer steps down. A nearly unprecedented event begins today, the tallying of a union election that is open to the public. The National Labor Relations Board will today begin counting the votes from a union election at a 6,000-worker Amazon warehouse outside of Birmingham, Alabama. Because these counts usually take place at the worksite on private property, they're typically closed to the public. But now, because of the pandemic, anyone with a Zoom account can watch as the NLRB conducts its tally and both sides deploy their respective legal strategies in real time. So it's been a tough few weeks for all you Georgetown fans out there. First, the team exits March Madness after a first-round drubbing from Colorado. And then today, the Georgetown Law School lost its spot among the coveted top 14 in U.S. News and World Report's annual rankings. The new rankings have UCLA taking over Georgetown's spot in the top 14. Northwestern also slid a few spots down to number 12. And finally, attorneys gave their opening statements yesterday in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. He's facing several counts of murder and manslaughter in the death of George Floyd last year. Check out our sister podcast, Uncommon Law, for day-to-day coverage of the Chauvin trial. There are only six people in the world who are worth more than $100 billion dollars and only one of them lives in Omaha, Nebraska. That person is, of course, Warren Buffett. And he's known for running his holding company, Berkshire Hathaway, in some pretty idiosyncratic ways. Bloomberg Law's Brian Baxter looked into how Berkshire runs its legal department, and he found that it doesn't have one. I spoke to Brian from his home in New York City about why Berkshire is set up this way and about the outside law firm with an extremely close tie to the Oracle of Omaha. This is something that's been on my radar for a while. I wrote a story last year upon the passing of Jack Welch, the former chairman and CEO of General Electric, who, along with his uh, legal chief, Ben Heineman, really sort of invented 
what the modern in-house legal department looks like, uh, where you have different lawyers with different expertise, whether it's a head of litigation, what have you, uh, sort of reporting up the chain of command uh, to a law department leader. And Berkshire Hathaway, which is which is a giant conglomerate of different companies, has none of that. Uh, and instead, they have uh, an outside law firm, uh, Mugger, Tolls & Olson, uh, which is based in Los Angeles and is sort of uh, akin to what some have called the Wachtell of the West. Wachtell Lipton, a very famous New York law firm. And the Munger in Munger, Tolls & Olson is Charlie Munger, who is also the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. He has not practiced law in probably decades. He's he's in his 90s, right? Turned 97 on January 1st. Mazel tov. Um, well, that was one of the things that also really surprised me. It's not just that a company of the size of Berkshire Hathaway would um, not have an in-house counsel. That's surprising in and of itself. But Berkshire specifically, their business model is acquiring companies. Mergers and acquisitions are like a huge part of what they do. That's a pretty legal, heavy activity. And they there's no one inside to help them with that. They rely solely on this outside law firm. Well, part of it, I think, is sort of the ethos of what, you know, Berkshire and Warren Buffett and, and Charlie Bunger have have wanted the conglomerate to be over the years, which is, you know, to have a – Warren has spoken many times over the the past few decades about this, how there only have like about 30 folks in Omaha. You know, there's not there's not a very – the actual holding company of Berkshire Hathaway is not large at all. Um, you So you have like this sort of main hub, if, if you will, in Omaha, which is just, you know, a little more than, than a couple dozen folks. And then you have the different subsidiaries of Berkshire, which are, you know, the BNSFs of the world, the Geico, the insurance company, um, Dairy Queen. You know, everyone loves Dairy Queen, especially uh, Warren Buffett. He certainly does. And all of these all of these companies, are, that's where the sort of largesse of Berkshire actually lies. You know, they're, they're, they're the ones that have hundreds, if not thousands of employees. And a lot of these companies do have their own in-house legal staffs. They will, will have their some their own general counsel, um, you know, Companies in regulated industries like Berkshire Hathaway Energy would obviously have more of a need for in-house lawyers than maybe some companies that that aren't as heavily regulated. Well, I I was kind of thinking that when I read your story, like, doesn't this create a lot of redundancies? Because as you mentioned, you know, they have Berkshire is this holding company that has a lot of other different businesses. You know, Dairy Queen, BNSF, Geico, among others, and they all have their own legal teams in those businesses. It would seem like that would be duplicating a uh, uh, a lot of work. You know, how is 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 Berkshire not really concerned with that? I it, I think it's the nature of sort of the way that their conglomerate is structured. Like it's not like if if you take a, like another big company like Microsoft, everyone pretty much you know it has different business units, but software is sort of the guiding philosophy of the you know it, it's a technology company. What Berkshire does is it's in so many different. Uh, areas that it would be very hard to have like a lawyer that would be, you know, both an energy expert and, you know, an ice cream expert would know something about French Dairy Queen franchising or something like that. You know, it, it, it's it's harder to sort of to, to structure a, a department that way. It, it's almost easier from, you know, the Buffett and Munger perspective where they just stay out of the business affairs of all these, you know, for the most part, I'm sure there's always exceptions over the years. But to just let these CEOs of the companies that they acquire, you know, have the autonomy 
because they're in those they're in within those industries themselves they know they know the sort of best decisions to make rather than you know looking up to someone who may or not be be an expert in you know different fields making that decision for them so it sounds like you had a really interesting conversation with ronald olson who is the olson in munger tolis and olson um tell me about him you know who he is and and what he's all about Sure. He, he joined Munger Tolls a few years after Charlie Munger did. I believe it was 1968. Um, and he's been a Berkshire board member for a long time. <laughs> it's Check out the story for more, deal, more details. But he was uh, he's an Iowa native, another Midwesterner uh, in the Berkshire Empire. Um, and he is sort of uh, one of the go-to lawyers at Munger Tolls f- over the years. And there are, there are others, Bob Denham who's also mentioned in my story, uh, that's get brought in for, for different matters, whether it's, you know, uh, an M&A deal, uh, a piece of litigation that they're dealing with. He's sort of the consigliere's, if you will, uh, that, that Warren Buffett will turn to if they have uh, any legal issues, including Charlie Munger himself, who, you know, despite the fact that he hasn't, you know, formally practiced law in, in many years, uh, you know, his uh, close friend and colleague, Ron, was telling me that he's still very active in, you know, making certain legal decisions. And, you know, despite being 97, he's he's probably one of the sharpest lawyers in the shop, if you will, in terms of uh, looking down the road at potential issues that that could arise. Well, the other thing I noticed in, from your story, um, you know, which you'll find out more about if you check it out on our website, is uh, that being a uh, lawyer for Berkshire Hathaway for a very long time, like Ronald Wilson is, Means that you accumulate some equity in Berkshire Hathaway, which means that uh, these these attorneys, these top attorneys at Munger Tolls, are very wealthy men, uh, like very very wealthy. Well, 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 big law is a good business to be in if you're if you've been a partner for a long time, especially an equity partner. Um, and you know our, our sort of Bloomberg data d- does have information on uh, on Ron Olson. He, is, he owns about sixty million in Berkshire Hathaway stock. Um, it does not collect data on the other lawyers there, unfortunately. Um, so we'll, we'll just have to imagine <laughs> how, how much Berkshire stock they've, they've accumulated over the years. It's a nice chunk of change there. Yes. Um, so one of the things that I really wanted to get into that I, I, I really liked about your conversation with, with Ron Olson is the ethics standpoint. Now, he didn't say that having a, you know, relying solely on outside counsel leads to better ethical outcomes. But he did kind of make the argument that it can benefit a company to have outside counsel rather than in-house counsel advising you, and, and it can lead to better advice from your attorneys and, and more ethical outcomes. Can you talk about what Ron Olson said when you asked him about sort of the, you know, how this model uh, compares to other models? Sure. I, I guess what Ron would say is if you look at the classic GE model where you have a general counsel, chief legal officer, I think what Ron was trying to say is that it's just a different way of getting to the same outcome of an ethical business. You know, you, you, you want as few legal public policy hurdles as you can imagine. And, you know, Munger Tolls has been sort of at Berkshire's side for so long that they know, you know, pretty much, you know, they're so well-versed and ingrained in the business that they, you know, can essentially provide the same function that an in-house law department leader would be able to do. Um, you know, it's not it's not that one is better or, or one is worse. It's just a different pathway to, I think, what any CEO or business leader would want. 
That was Bloomberg Law reporter Brian Baxter speaking to us from New York. For more on Berkshire and its corporate philosophy, check out Brian's story coming soon on our website, news.bloomberglaw.com. So if you tuned in last week, you may recall hearing that there are a surprisingly large number of judicial vacancies on federal district courts. The aforementioned slate of nominees from the Biden administration that came out today may change that a bit, but overall, there are a lot of empty judgeships across the country, and especially in California. As a result, that means a lot more work for the judges whose seats aren't empty, and one California judge isn't too happy with this, and he's making his feelings known in sort of a sly way. Jacqueline Willey, with our legal intelligence team, fills us in. This is uh, Judge Dale Draws. He's a federal judge in the Eastern District of California. And I was noticing that over the past year, he has issued six or seven opinions so far that include the exact same verbatim footnote. And the footnote is an apology to the parties who are litigating before him. Um, It's just a couple sentences long. I can read it. Uh, He says in this footnote, the undersigned apologizes for the excessive delay in the issuance of this order. This court's overwhelming caseload has been well publicized, and the longstanding lack of judicial resources in this district has reached crisis proportion. Unfortunately, that situation sometimes results in the court not being able to issue orders in submitted civil matters within an acceptable period of time. This situation is frustrating to the court, which fully realizes how incredibly frustrating it is to the parties and their counsel. So I think he used the word frustrating there at least twice. (laughs) He did. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Interesting. So that seems, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A little passive aggressive. Sounds like he's trying to send a message. Is that right? He is, yes. I think he's trying to communicate about the crisis. Um, But the main reason this caught my eye was, you know, this is a federal judge. He's got a lifetime appointment. He's a powerful guy. I thought being a federal judge meant never having to say you're sorry, but he's doing it over and over again. And not just saying he's sorry, but really, you know, uh, validating the emotions of the people before him, which I think is kind of a cool thing. Yeah, because I, I I get the sense, you know, if you're trying a case before a federal judge, you know, it must be frustrating when there's delays and you think you're going to get an order and you don't. And, you know, so he's, I guess he's really sympathizing with the attorneys before him. He is. And the problem that he's highlighting is a really real problem. Um, This is something I didn't know could happen, I confess. But um, the chief judge in his district about a year ago declared a judicial emergency Um, basically saying that there are so many cases pending before each of the judges. um, They just, they can't handle them. They've had a couple of uh, vacancies. A couple of judges have either taken senior status or inactive senior status. Um, And this judge, Judge Draws, actually issued a standing order that applies to all his his civil cases. Um, And he's saying, you know, I would love to hear arguments on these motions you guys are filing, but I can't do it because I don't have the resources. And I'm also not going to be scheduling any new civil trials, you know, until the situation resolves. Um, I think he said scheduling a new trial would be purely illusory because he just wouldn't be able to complete it. So um, it's a pretty significant situation over there um, in the Eastern District of California. So it it sounds like his footnotes that he's been putting on, on these cases are, on the one hand, you know, apologizing for the delays, but also it does seem like he's trying to send a message to you know, the people who appoint judges, i.e. the president, 
that, you know, we need more bodies in here ASAP, right? Yeah. And one thing he says in his standing order that I thought was really fascinating is, you know, he's in the Eastern District of California. So he's in Fresno and they also have a courthouse in Sacramento. And he said um, there are six judicial slots for that district. They're not all full right now, but there are six judges. And yet the Northern District of California, which is the Bay Area, um, you know, they have a similar sized population, but they have 14 judge slots, so more than double. Um, And there was recently a recommendation from the Judicial Conference, you know, that recommends adding, uh, I think, four new judges to this district for a total of 10. Um, You know, that's a non-binding recommendation. It would take action from from Congress to go anywhere with that. But um, he's certainly not the only one who thinks this is an untenable situation. So, Jacqueline, it, it's a little unusual to have a judge, um, you know, be apologizing to his attorneys. As you mentioned, you know, being a judge means never having to say you're sorry. You know, what I really liked about this um, was that this is coming from a federal judge with a lot of power and particularly that he's, you know, apologizing to people he has a lot of power over. Um, what it made me think of was um, there's a piece of advice that a lot of you know young women get when they're starting out in professions like the law, um, and some of the women lawyers listening to this might know what I'm about to say, but you know they're often advised, don't apologize too much, don't say you're sorry for everything. You know it doesn't it makes you look like you're not professional or you're not competent or you're not you know this or that. Um, I heard that advice early in my career, and I I always really hated it (laughs) because I thought that what we should really be doing is maybe seeing if people in positions of power and authority, like a judge on a federal court, um, maybe they should be apologizing more. Like, I don't think that's a bad thing to, you know, validate the emotions of the people you're working with and, and to do that. So I really liked that someone in his position took this extra step. I guess you could say he's normalizing apologizing. I love it. Yes. <laughs> normalize apologies. Let's get that trending on, on Twitter. Yeah. Hashtag normalize apologies. <laughs> and that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Jessica Coombs. Special help today came from Rob Tricanelli, Carmen Castro-Pagan, and Bernie Cohn. Our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter. If you have anything on your mind, we use the handle at BLaw. I'm at David B. Schultz. Thanks for listening and see you all next week. Hi, this is Adam Allington, the host and producer of Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Law. It isn't hyperbole to say that the murder trial of George Floyd is likely to be one of the most significant court cases in a generation. In fact, in the nine months since Floyd's death at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer, the name George Floyd has become synonymous with a growing movement for police reform, as well as a massive racial reckoning that has spread to all corners of American society. As the trial unfolds, the Uncommon Law podcast will be reporting on the trial in real time, or quasi-real time. Given the amount of interest in this case and the impact it's sure to have, we felt that it was important to be part of that discussion. So if you find yourself interested in this case, either in terms of social justice or because of the legal theories and precedents it touches on, or just because you might be on your own journey learning about issues of race and racism, then I think this is the podcast for you. Just click download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.